This podcast is approaching three years now, three years old, and I've been just really blessed with great guests who have come on. I've been blessed with our co-hosts, James, Stephen, and Charlie for giving their time to really make this show a team effort and just adding so much to it. I think I can speak for our listeners um, who have really enjoyed your presence on the show. And I prayerfully and excitingly look forward to more years of Doth Protest Too Much as we will continue to appreciate the Reformation and the theology and history of the church. And I want to tell you about a couple other podcasts that I highly recommend. They don't know we're giving them shout outs, but if you enjoy the content of this show, you will love, if you haven't already, the podcast called Queen of the Sciences. Uh, Queen of the Sciences, and the subtitle of that is Conversations Between a Theologian and Her Dad. Well, who is the theologian and who is the dad? Well, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and her dad, who is definitely also a theologian, Dr. Paul R. Hinlicky. Paul Hinlicky is a Luther scholar, a theologian, and also my supervisor in my doctoral program. If you are interested in what theologians have had to say about the COVID lockdown in 2020, books of the Bible, Martin Luther, and Martin Luther King Jr., the vastness of outer space, and the likelihood of meeting aliens, why N.T. Wright is right and wrong, uh, cybertech, and some of Canterbury, Critical Social Theory, that was my favorite episode, by the way. Well, Paul and Sarah do episodes on all those subjects and more. And also, if you like listening to me, and it's okay if you don't, we got others here on Doth Protest who are probably more fun to listen to. Uh, well, okay, maybe you listen like listening to Stephen, who has been on this show. Well, do we have a show for you? That's right. Stephen and I and our friend Michael are starting a podcast where once a month we come on and chat about movies that we like. Yeah, not heavy theological stuff, but lighthearted chats, and I'm sure some heavy, heavy discussions too, uh, though none of us are serious film critics. But we just come on and we talk about movies that we like. The podcast is called Film Gumbo. That's right. The second word is The Stew from Louisiana. Our first episode is out now. It's We get on and we discussed uh, The Lost City of Z, Inglorious Bastards, and The Revenant. And we just had fun with it. And we look forward to next month when we do our next episode. So check out our new podcast, Film Gumbo, currently on Spotify, but will be on more platforms uh, soon. And as well as Paul Hinlicky and Sarah Hinlicky Wilson's podcast, Queen of the Sciences. You can search for that wherever you stream your podcasts. And of course, we'll continue to enjoy you tuning in to Doth Protest too much. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. Been on hiatus for about a month. Uh, it's the summer and um, trying to relax, uh, even though that's uh, it's actually for me been a very eventful, busy summer. So, uh, but I'm glad to be back with you. This is Drew speaking. And today we have Cal Crucius, who, well, um, Crucius. Uh, sorry, I mispronounced that. 
and um, who's coming on to talk about an article he wrote for North American Anglican, um, uh, which is we've had people in the past who've written articles to them. And he's written several on there, and he also has a um, blog, which I'll put a link in the show notes, But um, and he also has a podcast, which we'll put a link to in the show uh, in the show notes. Um, and he's interested in his, his broad interests are in patristics, continental philosophy, and early modern history. And he is uh, quite the, uh, I would say, follows all those those currents of modern thought very closely based on what I've read from you, Cal. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Drew. Yeah, glad to have you on. And, um, you know, so the article that you wrote that we're going to spend some time talking about is actually several articles ago. I know you've written on this since. This is actually goes back to 2021, but it was titled, My Kingdom is Not of This World, a Critique of Cardinal Newman's Development of Doctrine. And, you know, um, our listeners may have heard that name Cardinal Newman before uh, because he was a pretty big, important theologian. Uh, in the 19th century, famously went from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism, uh, famously was part of the Oxford movement, I guess, as it later came to be called, but it's also known as the Tractarian movement. It's of which Anglo-Catholicism comes out of. And of course, a lot of people are oblivious to, um, you know, a lot of modern Anglican provinces today, including uh, very much a lot of it in the Episcopal Church, just a lot of the way we do things and the certain things that we have in worship that we just think we're always there uh ceremonial things things like that we're not always there those were actually imported um by way of of this anglo-catholic movement which is not very old in the grand scheme of things um seeing as anglican christianity arguably has been around since um you know the term anglican gets you know that's um that term kind of came about a little bit later than the English Reformation, but, you know, the Anglo-Catholicism is not, um, it's, there was a Church of England long before the Anglo-Catholicism, long before the Tractarian movement, and um, so we we have um, lost, uh, one of the big things we, of course, say on this show, that we emphasize is that we lost um, some of the, or really the churchmanship of Anglicanism as it had been for so long and just the beliefs that everyone uh, uh, agreed to and uh, assumed. And so uh, it was really a revolutionary movement, uh, the Oxford movement, um, and it lives on in certain ways. And we're here to kind of talk about just one figure from that, Newman, and um, basically uh, his his idea of a doctrine of development. So um, I guess we'll just, uh, what, what uh, interested you in this, Cal? Um, what, what interested you in Newman in writing this piece? Well, I've, I've always been mildly distrustful of the uh, tendency to venerate Newman, both from Catholics, many of whom are converts, um, but also uh Anglicans or, or even sometimes Lutherans who try to disaggregate themselves from other Protestants and say, well, you know, we're not Protestant or we're, we're different, we're a different kind of Protestant, whatever. Um, and really, I, I've uh, the, the reason for me writing this article is I made an offhand comment 
uh, online and somebody asked me to write an article about it. So I just decided I should just read Newman's books uh, top to bottom and then just uh, and conclusively make the case that uh, development of doctrine is often a wax nose. And not only, um, not only does the development of doctrine in practice leave many people in a difficult position to criticize the current state of things, whatever that might be, um, but most people who use Newman or refer to Newman don't actually read what Newman wrote, and he was much more careful about what he was intending to do. Um, and so it just sounds like, as, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, as a note of background, I, I, I would say that it's important to separate out uh, three distinct uh, movements in the 19th century Church of England. Uh, one would be the, the Tractarian movement itself which I can go into a little bit more about why they emerged. Uh, second, uh, ritualism, um, which is, is, is a related but distinct trend to try to recover uh, a, a more refined form of worship. And uh, additionally, uh, Anglo-Catholicism, which is a more, more of a historiographical trend linked to doctrine, which is saying, uh, you know, perhaps with a more of an accent than any time in the past, that uh, the Church of England existed all the way back to, you know, depending on how much you want to screw around with it, whether uh, Augustine of Can Canterbury or, or Joseph of Arimathea. But the point is that it goes through the Middle Ages. And so the medieval English church has a right to inform the doctrine and practice of the Church of England uh, in the contemporary moment, which was mid-19th century. Um, and Newman... Uh, kind of sets Newman sort of participates in all of them, but he cuts his teeth originally as one of the um, tractarian uh, critics of um, what they called a, a Erastian parliamentary takeover of the Church of England. The most uh, famous or infamous case of this is the Gorham controversy, where a priest uh, in practice and in word rejected baptismal regeneration. Uh, he was uh, disciplined by his bishop, but then a parliamentary committee, which through an appeal to parliament, a parliamentary committee convened and decided that Gorham did nothing wrong. The parliament uh, at, that had met decided that uh, he did not violate the 39 articles and um, they reinstalled him in his office. And so this was this great catastrophe for men like uh, Newman, but also uh, Pussy, who is much more of the face of Tractarianism, and this represented the state's control of the church. And so the first uh, famous sermon, um, as this, the title escapes uh, escapes me right now. But, uh, uh, national National Apostasy. Yeah, that's right. National Apostasy. We, we just uh, had, I think, the anniversary for last week, John Keeble. Or, uh, before, I, I want to I back up a little bit, though. Um, because I want to get into these three, as you say, adjacent strands, because they're not all the, I, I kind of like mixed them all together when I was in my introduction of, you know, being a Tractarian, being an Anglo-Catholic, Oxford movement, it's all kind of the same. But I know those are, there are some distinctions because these terms originated over, over a, a, a broader phenomenon taking place, but there's different, there's, there's different currents going on within it. So, but backing up, I, I want to, um, so one of your frustrations um you see today with a lot of anglicans and, and and even a lot of lutherans and i've seen this too in, in both of those groups that they, they they want to stand out apart from other protestants because there's something i guess about protestantism they don't 
like. I can pro- probably put my finger on what some of those things are because there are frustrations I suppose I share too with a lot of what you know contemporary Protestantism and maybe some contemporary evangelicalism how how it come to be in our day and age. But but what what I mean I guess what why is Protestantism a dirty word? today I, I guess so how what, what would be well, the... for for newman and i think he represents at least sort of the bleeding edge of the tractarian movement the essence of what it means to be a protestant is individual judgment which most people who are involved in apologetics and or interested in this thing would ape the same claim so uh, newman goes as far as to say um if you uh accept the luther but you reject calvin or you reject socinus so the Socinians, Unitarianism, basically, uh, you're you're basically building a house without a roof. It was inevitable that if you accept Luther's protest as a diet of arms, then you inevitably get to Unitarian thinking, because that is the essence of what it means to be a Protestant. And I think a lot of uh, higher church Protestants or those more inclined to tradition uh, have the same kind of allergy and the same kind of suspicion that Newman has. So they think that Protestantism is is, is very much synonymous with being, with just being a total subjectivist or something like that. Yeah, that ultimately it's the individual conscience. And so when Luther, I mean Newman kind of barbarizes it, but when Luther says, um, you know, I you know I, here I stand, I can do no other according, you know, unless he could be convinced by plain scripture or by his conscience that he could not subject himself. And so that was. The defining principle of what it means to be a protestant so everything from uh you know utilitarians wearing christianity's a skin suit um, to advance their liberal political vision or lutherans or confessional to calvinists to baptists to uh, methodists doing um revivals they're all the same they all have the same root spirit even if they uh, preach different doctrines. Newman recognized that they all taught different things, that they're all maybe parallel streams, but they all emerge out of the same single point that he claims is individual judgment, which in a related note, he says, um, right, the Syriac churches uh, rotate between um, monophysitism and Nestorianism because the core of their belief is rational, uh, di- r- rationalizing the divine. Uh, they don't have any place for mystery. So they, so these are these core principles that Newman believes he can detect over the course of Christian history. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's kind of a common uh, popular Roman Catholic argument I see a lot today against Protestantism is that there's this idea that um, Luther's appeal to the conscience. Um, first off, I think they're really enact anachronistically uh looking at importing into luther something that's more modern because i think with the advent of more modernity and the enlightenment um and you know the philosophers like descartes we have this notion of our of our this sanctity of the individual and our right to reason and our right to conscience that wasn't exactly what luther in his day would have been right in defense of what Newman is saying and what apologists today kind of ape, um, 19th century liberals and 19th century higher critics and 19th century Christian modernists touted Luther as the first modern man precisely for this reason. Mm-hmm. So 
for Newman, he's just doing a value uh, judgment reversal. Right. Yes, he is the first modern man. That's why he's bad. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, 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 there's been a, <laughs> waves of Luther scholarship of the past 60 years that look at uh, Luther, uh, particularly in his high medieval context, tracing why uh, Luther was actually not, he was unique on one end, but he also, uh, you, you know, was was understandably um, what was influenced by uh, strands of Augustinianism, strands of mysticism. Uh, Luther would not have, he would not have been, came off as that radical, I think, in his own day. Um, I mean, outside of like these, these, these individual moments where he, he definitely does take a stand against the wider, uh, you know, power structure, but I don't know, that's, a, that's another story, but um, I know we're not, I'm not, I don't want to dwell on, you know, how, how they get Luther right or wrong. Um, but, but basically, you know, you mentioned, I guess we can fast forward now to the, those three, um, those three uh, things, Tractarianism, Ritualism, and Anglo, or yeah, Tractarianism, Ritualism, and Anglo-Catholicism. I guess what's, um, can you kind of go through those three things, starting with Tractarian? Uh, what, what is the, what does the term Tractarian uh, refer to? So it refers primarily to a group of clerics in the Church of England who were appalled at this seeming indifference to uh, sacraments and ritual in the church. Um, now, you know, there's, there's a kind of irony where evangelicals and the, what will become the Tractarians have a mutual interest in depicting uh, the 18th century as a period of uh, spiritual death for England, mm -hmm. um, that, that it was incredibly rational, self-interested, uh, very dull sense of faith, which for high church, for, for Tractarians trying to construct a history of their movement, they see themselves as the heirs of uh, Archbishop William Laud and the Laudian um, faction that he had established, and then through the 17th century, into the high church movement and the non-jurors, um, which was a breakaway faction in the uh, late 17th, early early 18th century that emphasized uh, uh, clerical spiritual powers and the importance of the sacrament over um, the teaching authority of the church. Um, so anyway, they both depict this in these ways. And uh, for the Tractarians, what unifies them is... Uh, is a commitment to trying to restore at least the balance of a more clerical sacerdotal uh, church of England the, that would accommodate the kind of high church uh, doctrine and practice that you would see in the late 17th, early 18th century. So when, when uh, the term high church is used many, I mean, funny enough, uh, if you were to look at a 17th or 18th century low church Protestant, he would be considered high church because he still wears a robe um, and they still meet in a you know a church building. It's not mm -hmm. like uh, they're not wearing a tie and jacket and skinny jeans or something. But yeah, right. um, but uh, but what high church meant was uh, emphasizing the uh, sacramental authority of the priesthood. It wasn't just convention that somebody became a priest that the congregation recognized their authority or the civil authorities, the magistrate, the king, whoever. Uh, recognizing talented men and then, uh, you know, allowing them to exercise authority. It was uh, an emphasis on the transmission of uh, sacred powers 
beginning with the apostles through the bishops to the contemporary church. However, high churchmen uh, did not wear copes. They wore still fairly regular uh, Anglican garbs. Um, so this is just a, like a basically a white gown with a black scarf. Um, so there were no copes. There were no candles necessarily. Uh, there was no incense. Uh, there were no pictures that were, uh, you know, there might be stained glass, uh, but it's not the kind of use of images for religious veneration or worship. If anything, it was just to educate the laity. So you look mm -hmm. at a stained glass and you can see a picture of you know, David tending the sheep or, or killing Goliath, or you see a picture of Elijah being taken up in a chariot or an image of Christ. Um, this is, you know, again, like lots of low church, quote unquote, church buildings throughout the United States uh, or, or Western Europe uh, who are Protestant um, would be considered, quote, you know, kind of low church in this way because these these images are not for religious practice. So anyway, that's that's um, the Tractarians channeled this legacy um, and they did not necessarily abandon uh, at least a very generous uh, reformed identity of the Church of England that you can see in the Book of Common Prayer uh, in a 1662 edition and also in the 39 articles, which is why the Tractarians who write the tracts for, for the, um, our times, I think that's right, um, you know, they give a defense and an explanation for each of the articles of the Church of England um, that, that gives it a uh, you know, this sort of sense that we are a little bit different than the dissenters. We're not Calvinists, but we're not cutting ourselves off from the reformed tradition. Do they really like, do they really depart the, cause the big critique I hear of the Tractarians is that, and I'm, I know they, they, they gave their defense of why they, they, the articles, the 39 articles can be aligned with what they're believing and doing, but uh, one like I've heard of uh, about Newman's, uh, I assume Newman, he wrote the um, his interpretation of 39 articles, which is what I think you're referring to. I've always heard a big criticism of that was that it was um, really just not a plain sense reading of the articles that it would take really like some big interpretive leaps to try to say that that's what that article is actually that that article yeah, specifically his, what, yeah. yeah his redefinition of the of the article on justification by faith alone and his article on um, right. the eucharist and saying that both of these are uh you're capable of reading both of these in rejecting justification by faith alone and by accepting uh, transubstantiation and i think that's sort of the break breaking point for him because he realized that um He's doing mental gymnastics to, to demonstrate right. these points. But other Tractarians did not have as radical of a view. And, you know, you can read 17th century Calvinists. You can read all his way back to Luther, who talks about justification by faith alone never means a faith that is alone and good works are necessary. And it's, right. it's exactly how that is parsed out that has um, divided or separated Lutherans and reformed from within their own confessions. But uh, it was perfectly normal um, to accept at least some kind of modified form of or, or softened form um, for these Tractarians that want to emphasize, again, ritual and sacrament and clerical authority over um, especially this evangelical emphasis on preaching and believing and um, emotion. Yeah, I think it was even Michael Ramsey who um, I, I read a 
the book of a collected essays by him a few years ago and i remember one essay he he lamented how um there were a lot of people training in church of england schools to for the ministry who um were heavily under the were, were, were well they they were not reading any luther at all and for luther being such a significant church figure it was it shocked him but also he 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 um, went from that point on into how the tractarians actually had um would have benefited them to be more familiar with the works of the reformers because they they speak an awful lot about the relationship of faith and works and the importance and the necessity of works yeah um, i mean this is where know. uh for a broader point for the history of ideas uh generally ideas are formulated and, and, and spread in a polemical manner so you know when they're criticizing the Protestant nature of the Reformation, and they're trying to recover a more Catholic sense of things. What they're complaining about is uh, dissenters that have moved both towards uh, kind of liberal rationalism, but also evangelicals that have uh, much more radically de-emphasized uh, clerical office and sacrament. Yeah, yeah, the extremes of uh, the the Protestant extremes, right? <laughs> uh, uh, laying that at the feet of the reformers um you mentioned that term uh sacerdotal um break that term down for us and why um why because it seems like um the point that you know reformers like cramner held um or the point that cramner was trying to do in his in the way he uh reformed the liturgy and was was to get away from the sacerdotal nature of the ministry um i mean it's certainly uh that's certainly part of it you know so it's you know being sacerdotal emphasizing that this office gives you some kind of sacred or spiritual potency that you otherwise lacked as mm -hmm. just a lay christian um so if you were to you know oversee a celebration of the eucharist or you try to ordain someone that it was ipso facto illegitimate because you don't have this power now it's not saying it's not power in the sense of like a you you have like a magical ability, um, or even the high high churchmen rejected that in the 17th, 18th century. It's more about uh, you're given a, a covenant and it has a certain form and and there are certain offices that are provided and, and passed down in a certain way. And when that's rejected, um, then um, then then these are automatically illegitimate in God's eyes, at least regularly speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, but it had to do with, you know, a, a basically uh, trying to control the conscience of somebody through priestly powers. Right? You know, Kramer uh, is, is a little bit ambiguous because when he believed what during which reign of which monarch and his own changing views over time, it's difficult to pin him down exactly uh, what he thought about things. Uh, but there are, you know, there's an infamous letter, I think, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, where Kramer is sort of indifferent about the Episcopal office, apart from the Presbyterial office, and that they're in his eyes basically the same, uh, at least in terms of authority. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a product of history that separated them. Uh, so anyway, I mean, the point the point to be made is that the, the priest, if he tells you that you know I'm withholding communion from you, you are in a state of uh, uh, um, you are you are in a state of um, what am I thinking? Uh, you're not being excommunicated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You're not in a state of grace. You're not permitted to attend the church or take communion. Uh, and that the priest has that authority to determine that um, for an individual conscience and not leaving it to um, 
the individual Christian himself and that the priest's role is more pastoral, right? He can give you counsel and, you know, he could bar you according to his authority, but it's not, he's not speaking in terms of the, uh, in, in terms of what God is actually doing, but uh, this is just sort of a human constraint. Any, any more than like, a, you know, a pastor may have the civil power as being uh, the head of the church, at least as a corporate body, legally speaking, where he owns the property that he could then, you know, dispel you because you're trespassing or something. Mm -hmm. um, right? You know, the, the spiritual power is something different and how exactly it's exercised and how much it's exercised uh, is what divided churchmen in the 17th and 18th century. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that it's like there are levels, right? Like, so, uh, you know, Anglicans generally never practice uh, private confession, um, but you do have offices like, uh, the, you know, the basically the last visit, the, the visitation of the sick, um, where you offer absolution. And does, do you actually have the, are you actually absolving the people by speaking those words? Or are you just speaking kind of in a, in a third person passive where you say, I absolve you versus may God absolve you if you are, you know, genuinely heartfelt penitent. Right. Um, that's, that's sort of the, you know, the questions and what level of authority and, and by whose right do you have this authority is what divided, um, some Anglicans, um, and but all of it is within the realm of what it means to be a Protestant. Like Lutherans can sound very clerical because the in the in the office of absolution, the pastor says, "I absolve you in the name of Jesus Christ," but or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But um, but the uh, but you know on the same hand on the same hand, right? Lutherans can seem very um, uh, constrained by civil authority or or by the magistrate and sort of moving people from office to office or what qualities you need to even be installed in the office being determined by the prince um so right all of these are within the bounds of what it means to be a protestant it's just always the threat that uh you know polemically speaking whether it's the 16th century or the 19th century whether this puts you closer to roman catholicism and for the rising tide of evangelicalism even the sense that a clergyman could bar you from communion um, because he thinks you're a reprobate or something is, is usurping uh, too much power to himself. And this is a step back towards the spiritual slavery of Rome. Mm -hmm. And so Tractarians uh, react accordingly, that this is an abandonment of what it means to be Anglican. And, uh, and so then they reemphasize these kind of clerical powers. And that's mm -hmm. part of what Newman... Um, was hoping to protect and now the rit ritualism i know um you know i've done some of the my knowledge of Amer the of, of the history on the american side here in the episcopal church ritualism uh, i believe is, is is around kind of the same general time and in, uh, the there's the famous instant instance of um james decoven uh who is a wisconsin-based priest i think you know has some connection to um kind of that history up there with neshota house i know there's even a uh, de coven center named after him i don't know what it's used for today I, but i do remember uh that being there um he was of course famously uh, attended general convention and even with a pretty significant opposition was able to get the con you know the general convention of the Episcopal Church to approve to have a to a broadened sense of what can be done 
in the worship of the Episcopal Church in our ceremony opening. And he was, of course, of, you know, I guess, say very, very high church leaning. And he would be a ritualist, though, uh, in favor of incorporating all these different rituals, either done by the priest or done by the corporate body gathered uh, in worship. That was not really ever some par part of Anglicanism. And a lot of it was either imported from Rome or what they thought came from like a, you know, in the earlier uh, earlier Christianity before, you know, the excesses of Protestantism, you know, cut it out or whatever. Right. So, so that, you know, that's, that's what I comes to mind when I think of like a, a, a very, you know, kind of close to home in the, in the Episcopal Church, American example of a ritualist, but can you kind of give us a little bit info about that movement? I mean, it's, it's uh, ritualism, you know, refers more specifically to its English form, which then transferred to the United States. But there were ritualist movements among various Protestant groups. And it is this idea that, uh, especially, you know, again, understanding this polemically, uh, against the tide of uh, liberalism and, and church and state, the, the rising tide of democracy and nationalism, uh, industrialization, modernization, that to further root and protect these churches, that we must return to a stronger sense of corporate ritual, um, especially, um, and this is why I think ritualism ended up often dovetailing with uh, the acceptance of modernism, is that if the church uh, is starting to have questions about the validity of the Bible, that Darwin's theory makes uh, you know a straightforward reading or the traditional reading of Genesis impossible to believe, um, various other intellectual movements that chip away at certain Christian doctrines, then uh, what exactly holds us together as a church? And ritual um, is a is a clear case of this. And you know this eventually you know will form the liturgical movement in the early 20th century. Um, you know this idea that if we pray the same way and we worship the same way and it will spiritually form us, then we can be much more charitable about doctrinal differences, even if the doctrine that's being debated is the divinity of Christ or the uh, infallibility of Scripture or um, so, you know, penal substitutionary atonement of, of, of the cross and, and these sorts of things. So uh, I think I think that's the wider context. It just meant ritualists did not necessarily have this uh, fear of Erastianism, though they often did. It was just a sort of a subsequent movement uh, that was focused on restoring um, not just primitive worship, but just having a greater sense of continuity with the Middle Ages to try to combat this feeling of uprootedness um, that was spreading across the West. Well, I'm, I'm noticing an underlying thread between the last two. So in Tractarianism, you, you said how they went about, you know, in, interpreting um, the 39 articles in the light of their understanding, uh, which meant stretching uh, the meaning of these articles, which are supposed to be the the, the formularies, the, the principles that ground the Church of England in its belief. They stretch it beyond what he can even reasonably um, be interpreted to be um, uh, and then when you get into the ritualists they they're as you described them they were kind of like the trads of their day right they they lamented the rise of the modern world the industrialization and the you know um, the, the world was coming apart in front of their eyes and so they want to go back to something sacred something rooted and so they they wanted to have you know be rooted in the ritual something that we to recover that something they used to do uh, something we used to do that we lost let's go back to it 
but in doing so, <laughs> you know, you know, how you know, as you said, it dovetails with modern modernity. It it, it basically uh, relativizes a lot of other things. Uh, it was a it was a, a core doctrine. So <laughs> it was an obsessive focus on form uh, over substance. Um, and it, it you know just sort of as an aside, which is not totally baseless, but uh, this is why Charles Kingsley uh, thought that the uh, ritualist movement was just full of uh, closeted homosexuals who like to dress up in lace and silk <laughs> and perform, you know, kind of these very elaborate um, ceremonies. And uh, there was an article that was less polemical about how this there was this sort of undercurrent mm -hmm. uh, um, of this. And and you know, and then to put in a you know slightly less sinister light. I mean, this, uh, a lot of these, uh, the, a lot of this focus on ritual also dovetailed with uh, the social aspect of Christianity. So some of these Anglo-Catholics, uh, which Anglo-Catholicism is sort of a fusion of this tracta tractarian hostility to evangelicalism with ritualism to put forth this new historical case about Anglicans are the middle way between being Roman Catholic and being Protestant that we uh, the Anglicans have preserved the, the all the good aspects of the medieval church or the Reformation was really just about papal jurisdiction had nothing really to do too much with doctrine um, and so that allowed you to then scour the 11th 12th 13th century to um, fill in uh, you know at least in their view a fuller more Catholic view of the church um, and so if doctrine isn't so necessary if it's about trying to be christ to especially all this new class of uh, uh proletariat this new working poor that are filling you know london and uh, uh bristol and manchester and, and other other major kind of commercial or industrial cities then um then that's where the church needs to be at work um mm -hmm. and so down, you know, again, this sounds very much like if you know American church history or, or even just broader European church history, this, this smacks of uh, the social gospel, right? We need, why are we arguing about the particular order of how predestination works? Why are we arguing about uh, something as difficult to understand as justification? Uh, we should put that aside and focus on the things that matter, which are unified corporate worship so that we still remember that we are dealing with mysteries beyond human comprehension, and then also uh, social work uh, for the um, the poor and the needy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's um. I see. I do see some of the, the kind of the, the modern counterpart, as in modern, like in our own contemporary situation. I've known um, Anglicans who um you know in the episcopal church where there are when it comes to liturgy and how it's to be done they're they're nearly fundamentalist but when it comes to what you believe oh anything goes you can just believe whatever you right. want <laughs> so you do, which you, it seems it seems um you know to at least to many people today as much as it was 150 years ago it seems much more uh liberal and enlightened and accepting to allow a variety of doctrinal differences as long as you live and practice the same way you can think whatever you want right yeah um so when you were talking about the um there's market when you talk about like some of the polemics against uh, anglo-catholicism that they're you know um 
as you said, like closeted homosexuals just want to wear pretty clothing. <laughs> I mean, I've heard that polemic too, but, but, you know, there, there was, um, Mark D. Chapman kind of spoke, um, uh, he, it reminded me of something he said in his brief intro to, uh, Anglo-Catholicism. I just wanted to read a quote that, um, it, consistency was never the hallmark of the, of, um, he talks about it, the the style of Anglo-Catholicism that was that was super into like English romantic medievalism. It was super into aesthetic. It was really into um, to to just just heavily Baroque. Um, he, he said consistency was never a hallmark of that style of Anglo-Catholicism. While it elevated the doctrine of bishops, he usually practiced the most extreme form of congregationalism. Outwardly, it could maintain a strong moral line while at the same time becoming a safe haven of homoeroticism, a trait notoriously, if implausibly, identified by Jeffrey Faber, even in the Oxford Apostles them, themselves. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, and I've heard the same with like, even like Evelyn Underhill, there, who was kind of, you know, on the surface, looked like this, this, you know, um, contemplative type, uh, seemed to, you know, have this contempt be, be part of this contemplative type of christian spirituality but underneath that you know dabbled into the you know the occult to some extent there's been some, yeah there uh, was a, there was an article floating around how some of the nosebleed high anglo-catholic churchmen oftentimes were members of uh like the uh the oriental order of templars and and yeah. thelema and uh various occult or freemasonic related uh uh kind of esoteric groups yeah esoteric they're, they're interested like in they're magic really... and yeah angels and summoning things yeah it seems like they're just really into esoteric type thing yeah um it's um interesting and i don't know if it's good you know they lived in very victorian times and i don't that that could seem very sterile and dry in one sense and i don't know if that maybe they're both their churchmanship and their lifestyle were both in ways to rebel against that i don't know but uh, right, there is this, uh, you know, formally, you know, similar to people who identify as traditionalists today. Um, you know, you take the name of tradition and to be effectively a rebel against the status quo. Um, and so, you know, you might ironically or unironically appeal to, you know, your great, 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 great grandfather's way of life, you know, to, you know, oppose your actual father. Um, mm -hmm. And so... You know, whether whether that's right or wrong, you know, right. it, it, did, it does have this element of rebellion against the, as you say, the sterile, uh, hyper rationalistic, very dry, dull, mechanical world that uh, was increasingly seen as the default. Mm -hmm. So um, you talked about tractarianism, ritualism, that third one, Anglo-Catholicism. I, I don't know if there's really much to be. I mean, I invite you to say a, a few things on that. I know there's so much there. I'm just can't help but see a lot of overlap here. Because we are talking about yeah, it's I don't, the only reason to distinguish it is to uh, emphasize that Anglo-Catholicism uh, is is kind of a step up from these other two. It's sort of synthesizing them together into something more coherent. Mm -hmm. um, now it is fairly novel because uh, English churchmen, right, when they talk about being Anglican up until the 19th century, it's it's usually just because it's, it's the Latinization of being the English Church. Um, they didn't see themselves as cut off from the Reformation. They considered the continental Reformed churches to be their sister churches. Of course, they thought they were the, the eldest and best sister of the Reformed churches, um, but nevertheless, they were sisters. 
Um, <laughs> and, you know, you can even read uh, among very high churchmen in the 18th century that will refer to uh, continental Presbyterians as well. You know, you know, ideally you should have a bishop, but they had an emergency. They couldn't actually get a bishop. So being Presbyterian is fine in that context. Mm. It wasn't fine in the English context. You couldn't dissent from a perfectly good reformed Episcopal church, but on the continent, they didn't have that. So they don't, they don't cut off uh, continental Presbyterians. They don't cut off Geneva or the Netherlands or or the Huguenots, uh, or or whomever, right? All of them were believed to be fellow Reformed Christians uh, who held a, a common faith. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so Anglo-Catholicism uh, is a historiographical modification to say, no, the Church of England's not Reformed. It's half Reformed. It's half Catholic. And that's what makes it better. Uh, and of course, right, in the, the history books about the Reformation, the Church of England, when... Elizabethan churchmen talked about the Church of England being a middle way. It was between Luther and Calvin. It was not between uh, Rome and Protestants more generally. Right. Yeah, and I think if you read the articles, it's it's the articles, for instance, it's definitely the 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 room between Luther and Calvin is a, is enough. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, what the articles there's nothing in the article that would any the anything in the articles that would that would uh communicate to me that that um th that any of it's going toward a romish direction at all, right. all it's only it's only from a different point of view i mean this is this is why you get like uh, like deists like uh john tyndall in the in, in england uh saying well you know i'm the truest protestant i'm the truest believer in the reformation because i reject everything catholic including the incarnation uh, the Trinity, uh, all these things are popish uh, relics. We should purge them. And of course, right, churchmen in the Church of England and as well as Reformed dissenters rejected deism. Um, but it's, it's you know, all of this is polemical, right? You, I'm the best Protestant because I reject every single thing that Catholics believe, uh, right? That has a kind of, uh, that has a certain kind of rhetorical punch. That you're the true son of Luther. And of course, right, then you, in the 19th century, get reactionaries who say, yeah, exactly, that's what, protestants really believe deep down and we reject that and that's why newman uh would emphasize right catholic christianity which for him is distinctly roman catholic catholic mm -hmm. christianity's primary principle is the incarnation whereas for protestants it's individual judgment for uh, the syriac churches whether nestorian or monophysite it's uh rationalism um and then for the Eastern Orthodox, he just thought they were dead. So they had nothing. They were just anti-papal. They were just knee-jerk reactionaries. And so they, there's no growth there. So you can dismiss all these other churches because none of them inhabit the original principle of Christianity, which is uh, the, the God-man. Um, so getting into John Henry Newman, um, it's going to zero in on one person uh, that was part of, um, especially the Tractarian movement. Um, but he came up with something called the Doctrine of Development, which your article was definitely um, focused on. And, and um, you, you describe it as, well, I guess, um, well, you describe it as this, quote, the de development, to Newman, development is not like an investigation worked out on paper in which each successive advance is a pure evolution from a foregoing but it is carried on through and by means of communities of men and their leaders 
and their guides. So development is basically, as you kind of described it, it's a symbiotic, you know, the interaction, maybe kind of a dialectic, if you will, between a, a principle, a true, you know, timeless principle, and then a time-bound person who's trying to make sense of that principle. And as that person and the world they live in go through more things or whatever, whatever it is, they, they that principle be, that the, that principle become comes more uh, more to the fore. It comes it becomes better and better understood through time. And so this is what happens with the church, right? Because if you go back to the early church fathers, um, a lot of them will not agree on uh, you know many of these many of these things we would say are first order things in the church. But there, you know, you can quote one church father saying something different about, you know, faith or justification, something like that. Right. It, it's not even that they differ among each other, right? Newman was a good enough patristic authority, though, you mm -hmm. know, um, within his context that he would argue, he'd say, look, a lot of the church fathers were just wrong about a whole bunch of things. Um, he quotes uh, St. Basil as saying that Dionysius... Um, uh, of Alexandria, who was a third century saint, that he was basically an Arian. Justin Martyr was an Arian. Irenaeus accepted Patripassianism, which is that the idea that the father suffers. Um, and you, you, you know, he said Hippol Saint Hippolytus uh, was incoherent about the actual relationship between the Godhead. And so he's he, he's very brusque, and you know, in a way that you would probably not expect uh, someone like Newman to be. But he says, look, they are all. Uh, had all these errors, if we're going to base our doctrine off of what they taught, then we will end up uh, abandoning the basic sense of orthodox Christianity. Now, you could argue, oh, was he right about Justin Martyr or Irenaeus or, or, or Tertullian or whomever? Um, but his basic point is that, you know, we don't condemn them um, for these reasons because the, the crystallization of doctrine is something that has to take time to develop. It has right. to go through stress tests, pressure, uh, struggles, but what you get in Newman, which I think many people who quote him or cite him or, or use his name, is that you have something that's a very non-traditional form of tradition. Right? No one in the third or fourth or fifth century ever said, um, "No, right, our fathers were wrong," but you know they were fighting and working out this principle, and now we've come to a better conclusion through our struggle. No, they always said, "This is what we've always believed," and Newman as a historian thinks this is stupid. No, it is not what you've always believed, but right, God's providence is working through these fallible sinful men and leading the church to the proper place according to this principle that is instantiated in the Roman Catholic Church. So in this way, right, as you kind of mentioned, uh, Newman has a very organic uh, understanding of how social bodies work. Uh, this is a certain strand of the romantic trend in the Enlightenment of people like uh, Herder, uh, but also kind of medieval historians like Otto von Gierke. Um, you see this in uh, a later contemporary of Newman, John Figgis, uh, um, John Neville Figgis. Um, but there's a sense that uh, states, nations, peoples, they're living, churches, they're living organisms. And so they develop like living organisms. And so to so, kind of crudely put it the way many Newmanites will, Right, like the evolution of the church is a puppy growing up into a dog. Right, it's going to look a little different. Right. It's going to act different, but this is maturity. So it's a concept, um, and this is something that only works out through time. 
so it's a concept of tradition that's very very modern i mean i i and i know you you mentioned some of those enlightenment figures but you also i remember you mentioned in your article johan moeller who's someone i've done some academic study on yes. it seems like like so newman didn't even really create this um uh you know whole cloth it kind of came uh moeller i know talked a lot about the church as a living organism that constantly becomes more refined through time um and maybe you know uh newman perhaps built a lot off moeller um you know that that the idea is there with him as well right it, right they're all participating in this uh, wider um you know it's not anti-enlightenment but it is anti um modern anti-liberal anti-democratic well, it's romantic uh, right and they absorb certain parts yeah, yeah. it's, a, it's right. romantic uh, and you know, i guess to be fair i shouldn't you know romanticism saw itself as pushing against modernity but it's still very much within, I would say, very much a margin. Right, it, it, it depends on the same strands of thought. And so Newman, I mean, this is why uh, Catholics uh, you know, in the hierarchy were very wary of Newman uh, and disliked him a lot because um, this seemed to be an incredibly novel thing. When Rome defended its positions on rejecting justification by faith alone or by defending the larger canon of scripture or justifying the Pope's authority, when it, appealed to an unwritten tradition uh they were talking about something that was always in existence not something right. that changed um so just because you when they say unwritten tradition they're talking about literally an unwritten tradition of uh kind of um oral sayings and ideas that were passed down through the magisterium and even though right. nobody wrote about it it's still what was happening right. um and that's not what newman believed newman yeah. could clearly accept that no there really wasn't a papacy in in the third century. However, uh, the seeds of the papacy were all there. Uh, and you can root it back to Peter getting the keys from Christ and then later conflicts sort of forcing the papacy to develop more and more and more. But Newman doesn't think Peter was the first pope in the sense that, uh, you know, Pius IX was a pope. Well, and also, I mean, that you saw this shift in Roman Catholicism, like before you had kind of the, the Trentian version of Catholicism, which in many ways response to the reformation that that believed in scripture and then unspoken tradition which has been you know the retention of what has been passed on through that as like two pillars of the church and but then you get that then you get this other concept of roman catholicism Muller newman that that sees um tradition that, that sees the church as as a living continuing continuing develop developing uh organism um on the past episodes of and the from podcast. and you know in Newman's defense from from the point of time that he's speaking in uh right the, the Roman Catholic Church seemed to be the only effective bulwark against uh modernism right the the Euro various European states had all changed in accordance to uh, liberalism nationalism democracy and revolutionary fervor uh uh, from the French Revolution onward, uh, all the churches of Europe, all the Protestant churches seem to be succumbing in the same direction. The only institution that seemed, and, and another figure that Newman ref refers to and admired in some ways is uh, uh, De Maistre. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, part of De Maistre's turn to Roman Catholicism away from his own free Masonic liberalism was that the Pope is the rock upon which European civilization can function and thrive. And without the Catholic Church holding back the forces of revolution, all Europe would be swept away in chaos. And so 
from the point of view of say the like 1870s or 1880s, it seems like that's true. It doesn't seem like there are any cracks in the Catholic Church. And and you know, funny enough, right? Newman thought Vatican I was a disaster, uh, but he accepted it anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, famously told um, Lord Acton uh, that uh, I drink first to my conscience and second to the Pope. Um, so he was uneasy about this uh, idea that there is a kind of formulated papal infallibility, um, which, you know, you know, would raise questions, at least real retrospectively, you look back and think, you know, Newman, you should have seen something like this coming, this, this seemingly novel development, uh, or put an accent on something that Newman was uncomfortable with, because Newman was still himself politically kind of liberal, he believed in representative parliamentary democracy and things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, that there, there were these changes that seemed to be afoot and um and then of course right by the time of vatican ii it feels like the world's been turned upside down for a traditionalist but you know newman never saw that uh, take place but from the 19th century roman catholicism really does look rock solid and immovable and for newman uh and, and i think this is what's often forgotten is like when you stand from that point of view uh newman's arguments are much more rhetorically and emotionally powerful which is what you know, in fact, really, the you know moral suasion was uh, what he was going for, right? You see uh, the chaos of Europe and in the United States, and the only thing that can hold things together is this institution, which appears unchanging. But uh, Newman said, and right, this would be a debate for later uh, Newmanites, I guess, is that you know Newman said if the Catholic Church ever changed on any of its enunciations, on the things that it spoke about, if it ever changed on any of those things. Uh, it would discredit his argument. Uh, so, like, and when I say change, I mean like 180 position changes, not uh, this kind of process of development. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, a dog has four feet and then, you know, you chop off one of the feet. Now we're a three legged animal, right? This would seem like an obvious contradiction uh, to a past experience. Um, and so, you know, the challenge for people who like Newman today, who use Newman for defense of Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or uh, which he, you know, again, he had pretty nasty things to say about Orthodoxy, but uh, or, or any kind of more high church Protestantism, they have to reckon with the fact that uh, any kind of contradiction, uh, anything that's sort of a whiplash back and forth, anything that's supposed to just be done, uh, what he calls with pen and paper, all of these are a complete rejection of what he's talking about. What he's talking about is very long progressive historical change that um, cannot be reversed and it's a long process um, so you can never really figure out where things are going um, but you um, you should use your individual judgment which Newman never rejects use your individual judgment to submit to the Roman Catholic Church which has this principle of Christianity uh, within it and it will continue to develop uh, according to it so with Newman's, con um, does Newman, you know, because on his his elaborate theory seems kind of airtight in some instances, like intentionally, but I mean, you've already pointed out with some flaws, like what if there's a a, a pronouncement or some type of decree that that immediately, um, you know, is not part and that cannot be even seen in the trajectory or the develop into a developmental line, but totally um, undoes so much of what has come to you know, quote unquote fruition, 
But one another thing is like, does, is his is he does he still open himself up Newman to charges of subjectivism through because I feel like and I hear this a lot with with you know the argument again you know don't be Protestants a subjective thing you're just you know trusting in your own conscience your own interpretive which is a terrible character but um, but you know don't you still have to individually assent to um, the concept yeah that is espousing in order right so. so uh, um, to be clear about the enunciation part, right? Newman says revolutions happen a moment, but uh, like development takes time. So you know, it's not that one pope says something and then another pope says it uh, says the contrary. It's it's the it, it would be if a contradiction took root. So you believe something for a thousand years, and then the doctrine is changed, and then that becomes the new doctrine for the next five hundred years, right? For Newman, that would refute his argument. But uh, yes, Newman is very clear that we all practice individual judgment. The question is what, where do you, uh, you, how do you use that individual judgment? And for Newman, right, you know, obviously he's a convert. So he's exercised his individual judgment to reject the church of England for, for Rome. Um, uh, the, the goal is to properly use it to submit to the right authorities. So for Newman, Right. It's not just submission to the Bible, which, you know, is for him, he thinks is, uh, he has some, he has some pretty um, harsh words, right? The Bible's kind of incoherent. It's sort of this mess. Uh, you need an interpreter to actually get through it because otherwise it would just be chaos. But you could have an infallible interpreter and you can submit to an infallible interpreter. And for him, that is the teaching of the church. And the infallibility of the church is demonstrated through these processes of change right there might be chaos where there's a controversy over uh transubstantiation and nature of the eucharist um but ultimately right those who said it was just you know a symbol and nothing more they were rejected um uh, you know in the 13th 12th and 13th century and so then you see the continuity you see transubstantiation is proven true because it survived these battles mm-hmm. um and of course, the major problem with this, you know, it's an article of faith, ultimately, but the major problem with this is this depends highly on uh, historical presentism. Um, mm-hmm. And so if the church seems to change, uh, you're not really in a place to say that it is not, it's, it, you know, you could battle it out historically, right? You say that's not the teaching of the church and you have a fight within the hierarchy, but ultimately what the hierarchy accepts um, is something that you have to submit to because the hierarchy, the magisterium at least, is um, is the one who has the principle of the incarnation working itself out through the exercise of its office. Right. Um, so you really don't, I mean, so, you know, I saw online, right, some uh, more um, liberal-leaning uh, Roman Catholic who's uh, in favor of Francis's papacy, uh, you know, reprimand somebody who criticized uh rome's change of position on the death penalty mm-hmm. and you know his argument was basically that's what the magisterium teaches that's what the church teaches who are you to contradict uh rome right which just seems like a very traditionalist argument but it's being used in the service of what seems like a fairly substantial ethical change in the church and of course right uh somebody who believes in newman you you, you hold out right and say well you know francis papacy is sort of a blip we're going to return to something more normal, or maybe the Vatican right. II papacy is the whole thing is itself kind of a blip that we're going to have this reaction against that. And we're going to, right, we'll, whatever, we'll modify Vatican II, right, so that they will purge out the bad interpretations of it. Um, 
but you, you really are stuck with whatever the present magisterium and papacy seems to be doing, which for Newman doesn't seem like such of a bad trade-off because, again, Roman Catholicism was the bulwark of reaction and anti-modernism. And so right. it seemed like that was uh, ironclad. It would never be defeated. It hadn't been defeated by the French Revolution. It hadn't been defeated by the 1848 revolutions. Um, and it looks like it would be able to survive anything. So it's 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 um it helps to know that context Newman is in because from that standpoint I think it is really understandable when you see other uh, church bodies maybe in the east or whatever and and certain certain Protestant whatever different churches like bow to or cow to the 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 modern uh, tyrannies and the and the the of the that often that came out through the political revolutions. Um, to see how the Catholic Church was, seems to be the only entity that is like has some type of a permanence or or through all this or with in these very turbulent times it still remains there you know the same as it always was but of course if you're just using kind of empirical examples um, and you point out in your article like yeah if we're just going to look at empirical examples to show like um, especially in a specific time just to just to show like the strength of something and the weakness of something else you know how like especially today i mean you alluded to pope francis a little while ago and people in within his same church that don't like him you say in the article that rome's institutional unity is riven with division in practice teaching and life you know so um i mean where is there really a true uh uh is there really a true, you know, unity if there is such a diversity? And at the same time, uh, you mentioned, I like how you point out that, you know, one of the things, at least like in Newman's time, uh, that, you know, his argument was, look, look what you see and what Protestantism has brought about this century, the 19th century, you know, it's bringing about, you know, uh, complete, um, disregard for, you know, God's word through the, you know, the, the growth of critical scholarship and and you know right. um, casting doubts on um, historic Christian claims, but um, you say how you know fast forward to today we're actually seeing with the, under the umbrella of Protestantism you know there's been biblical scholars I think you said like uh, uh, Richard uh, Richard Bauckham who defends the historicity of the Gospels um larry hurtado's defense of high christology within the new testament um nt Wright's coherent integration you say of paul with the story of the old testament these were things that all you know 19th century german liberal scholars um uh missed you know <laughs> or you know they right, were i mean in some ways right, that, that, that was that i guess and newman was much more pessimistic and of course scholarly, scholarly trends go one way or the other but there was a sort of kind of there is a certain kind of pessimism that right appealing to the Bible alone would never be able to solve these problems. Right. And, um, and so you needed not just tradition, not just patristics, but you needed a living voice that could guide the church and speak right. infallibly on questions ranging from, um, you know, democratic uh, social changes uh, to the rise of, materialism and atheism much more explicitly within more radical factions and you can give a a unified church voice that speaks as one that says no 
Mm-hmm. And that that's what the appeal of Rome was to Newman. Because right. otherwise, like, right. like, what's the authority of one bishop versus another, one church body versus another? You just ignore it and do whatever you want. Uh, and, and, you know, for him, that was the essence of Protestantism, which brought the world to that moment. Right. And I could, you know, kind of going back to what I, what I was saying before, kind of like, it could be Inouye probably saw well these you know these Protestant universities in in like in Germany and places like that they're they're just re- you know they don't say they are but they're just tacitly replacing um, the the magisterium with um, with the academy as far as who has the authority to interpret the Bible look right, like a lot of these, what they've done with it a right? lot of these <laughs> uh, a lot of these universities you know were under royal or uh, uh, church patronage and uh and yet they were the ones producing the scholarship that's saying the bible is unreliable is full of errors uh you know new sciences that refute uh traditional claims of the faith that we can't really believe anything about anything um and they're doing this under the throne and altar that's supposed to prevent this so you know unless you have this anchor point of rome uh chaos would reign in europe Right, and it's you know, and it's important to point out though, right? You know, part of the appeal of what Newman is able to do in is in its in its rhetorical moves, but it's it's something of a shell game because what Newman gives you, which is tradition and authority and, and kind of an, a deep ecclesiastical presence, right? It sort of moved away with another shell because you have to say effectively, yeah, well, you know, people in the past were the, the fathers of the church themselves and all these councils, they had no idea what they were doing. They spouted off all sorts of chaotic errors, uh, and then we, we, you know, we don't pretend like that didn't happen. So, you know, when it comes to questions, well, did the church always use images in its worship? You know, Newman would say, no, of course not. Did they always were, were the fathers of the church Trinitarians uh, in, in an orthodox sense? No. Did they get Christology right? No. Did they get sacraments right? No. But the seeds of everything were there, and it would properly develop according to the way the history went. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. A lot of what Newman does is ex post facto reasoning, right? Why did why is Nicene orthodoxy true as opposed to Arian uh, uh, theological ideas? Well, Arians lost, right? And the Nicene's won, and they won the intellectual arguments, they won the political arguments, right? Arians were repressed and crushed, uh, which usually does a pretty good uh, a bit of damage to your uh, ability to sustain yourself as a church community. Um, and so, you know, it requires a lot of ex post facto reasoning. And so, I, you know, it's, it's just sort of, I forget if I mentioned this explicitly in the article or not, but right, if you got to a point where, uh, you know, gay marriage was accepted by the Roman Catholic Church or female priests were accepted, well, you could then conjure a long underground history through Roman Catholic, right? Oh, well, there were these kind of fraternal rituals of monks marrying each other. So that's sort of a precursor to gay marriage or, uh, you know, there were uh, female deacons in the early church. And, you know, why do things change or develop? Well, it reflects the needs of the contemporary society. So maybe women shouldn't have done that because the world wasn't ready for women priests. But now it is just in the same way that, you know, Roman Catholics recognize, at least the scholars or people who are knowledgeable recognize that priests could marry in the, in the Latin Western church uh, up until I think the 11th century when it was condemned uh and you know it was condemned because of property and about uh you know not focusing on the priestly life and just acquiring property and taking away from the church 
and not not focusing on the on the vocation to be a pastor to your flock. Um, and so what you can give with one hand, you can take away with the other. And and Newman becomes a means to defend uh, whatever you would like to keep and whatever you would like to change. Uh, it's just about how rhetorically capable you are in crafting a history. Uh, and you don't have to justify everyone, right? You can say, oh, yeah, well, of course, Thomas Aquinas was wrong about free female priests or, or you know, uh, you know, Ignatius of Loyola was wrong about homosexuality. But, you know, Justin Martyr was wrong about the Trinity. They're still fathers of the church. Um, and, you know, you're really in danger for an institutional capture that Newman didn't think was possible. Um, and so a lot of this depends on a kind of uh, apologetic shell game because it's a very non-traditional use of tradition. Uh, and you basically have to play the part of, uh, the King in the, in the, in the parable of the three blind men trying to describe an elephant, right? You know, this is often used by more liberal theological or more liberally theologically inclined people, but uh, most of the time when they tell this parable, they leave out the most important part, right? They say, oh, well, you know, everyone has a path to God. Everyone's trying to figure out their own way. One guy touches the trunk and says elephants are like snakes. One touches the leg, one touches the tail, the one touches the ear and so on and so on. But there's a king on a balcony who observes all of this and thinks it's sort of silly, right? Three blind men describing bits and pieces of the elephant is like all these religious traditions trying to describe God. But one person is always overseeing it and seeing how this was all turned out, right? If you were to tell Athanasius, you know, buddy, but like you're kind of stupid about certain things, but don't worry, we'll fix it later. Uh, you know, and those and those church fathers you referenced, they were wrong about a whole bunch of things, but it'll all get ironed out. Um, you know, this would be offensive and incoherent to someone like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, none of these church fathers thought there was anything wrong with the Bible. None of them thought they were deviating. They didn't think they were developing anything. So you, you have to say from the point of view as a modern person that um, with a faith in the future, but as a modern person, you have to look back and you have to be the king on the balcony, realizing that all these church fathers are kind of groping in their own context, and but they're making progress towards the full plenary form of the church, which we see now, and it will continue to be so, uh, continue to develop. Um but if you're a traditionalist and you want to appeal to this argument, you're really in a bad place because with uh, female deacons permitted in the Amazon right from the Amazon Synod under Pope Francis with the, uh, right, you know, which is a very small uh, right as opposed to like any of the unionists or the Latin right. But still right now it's something that exists some, in some pocket of the church. Uh, you have, um, you know, the... Um, Kind of tacit permission to bless same-sex unions even though it's not gay marriage uh you know because these are human beings too love is you know still love uh you have uh the change on the death penalty as an ethics you have the possible uh change ecclesiastically on uh the permissibility of divorce by uh francis through using a footnote and uh, Amoris Laetitia about uh, that was, you know, the interpretation was given a nod from the, the, the bishops of Malta that this would allow um, uh, communion for people who are remarried, right? I mean, you know, I think like Newman says that the value of the papacy is in the magisterium is you can speak with one loud, clear voice, the position of the church on this issue or that issue. 
but then how does Francis kind of deal with this? It's, you know, through this kind of labyrinth of uh, shadows where you make a footnote and then the footnote is being interpreted by a, a conclave of bishops and then the Pope says they're not wrong, right? This is anything but clear and unified. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so all of the positive things that Newman tries to give you about the Roman magisterium um, has been kind of severely put under strain, if not discredited. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, you, you don't have to take Newman's position to remain a Roman Catholic. There are other people in Newman's day that opposed Newman um, for various reasons um, who were Catholics, like uh, the Cardinal um, uh, Edward Manning. Um, but right, Newman's arguments, I think, ultimately just depend on uh, looking backwards, justifying the things that are happening in the present, in the present, and hoping that things in the future um, carry on um, according to the vision that you sort of have. But a lot of this is just rhetorical. It's not being deep in history. It's not. Um, it's not this sense of real tradition. As I'm believing exactly what Christians in the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and so on uh, centuries believed it. Uh, this is something very different. Well, I saw there's a meme that went around, it's, and it's um, like all memes, you can't capture complex theological arguments in it, but it said, uh, you know, it was a picture of John Henry uh, Newman, and on the top of the meme it says, to be deep into church history is to cease to be Protestant. The bottom of the meme says, invents doctrine of develop, development when you couldn't find Roman Catholic teaching in churches. Newman is very open about this in his in his book on development of doctrine. He's very clear that, uh, right, it, it sounds like a kind of a coping mechanism, but he says, well, you know, you know, if you look in the past, right, Protestants are right, you can't find Roman church, but you can't find Protestant churches either. Right. So, um, so, so you, you know, so this kind of levels the playing field. No, no appeal to the fathers will solve any of this. You have to come up with a different concept to interpret it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Cal, thanks for being on the show. Um, I got to run, but I know this was, um, it was great to hear you break down uh, and expand upon your article that you wrote. And again, for our listeners, that article was titled, My Kingdom is Not of this world a critique of cardinal newman's development of doctrine from 2021 um and i'm going to put a link in the show notes for for listeners to read it so cal thank you uh god bless take care and um wishing you best on your future work future writings thank you drew god bless you